Hello and welcome to the That's Afterlife podcast with DM Esther Ranson and Adrian Mills. Well, hello and welcome to That's Afterlife. I'm Esther Ranson and I'm here with my old friend and colleague, Adrian Mills. Not that old, Adrian. Yeah, I was going to say, not so much of the old, please, Esther. Okay, okay. How's the week been? Well, it's been very interesting, actually, because, uh, you know, men's grooming is all the rage. Uh. I went out and I bought some exfoliating face wash. And it said on the on the little jar thing, vigorously wash your face. Well, I so vigorously rammed my fingers up my face. My little finger went up my nostril and I ripped my nose. But I didn't realise until I looked down into the sink. And I thought, well, that's funny because this cream is green. Why is the sink all red? And there was blood everywhere. It was like an episode of uh, Holby City or a casualty. Uh, they shouldn't let you out. I, that that's lockdown may go on for a lot longer for me than other people, I suspect. Well, funny you should say that because I too am a bit of an invalid because my tummy has decided to explode and I have nobody to blame but myself because you know those sell by use by dates that shops put on food. Oh, and they don't put them there to be ignored, Esther. I mean, you got an eclair in your fridge. It's asking to be eaten. Well, and but do you know something? I learned this because if it says sell by, then you can still eat it a few days after. If it's used by, and I suspect that eclair was, then you don't touch it. You throw it away. Well, well. So if I depart during this excellent podcast where we are inviting our star guest, David Baddiel, who has never knowingly said a dull thing. So he's going to be fascinating. But if there's a sudden silence in the middle of my conversation, could you cover for me? Because the loo is a little way away in my cottage. We will talk about you as if you were still here, even though we will hear the flushing of the toilet in the background. And also... It's been a quite hectic week for me because I finished moving house. Hooray, fanfare. And it put me in mind of the time when I was house hunting. Did I ever tell you this? Go on. I was looking around various houses and my estate agent sort of overestimated A, my bank balance and B, my sophistication and was showing me around a very, very elegant townhouse. And the house belonged to someone quite well known. So uh, they had this amazing walk-in wardrobe you know, with everything colour-coded in the most extraordinary way. They had his and hers bathrooms. I mean, it was way above my, you know, social standing. Anyway, so we then went into the master bedroom and I said to the estate agent, why why have they got an extra wardrobe here when they got a walk-in wardrobe next door? So he opened the door and then shut it very quickly. <laughs> it, was, it was full of very shiny black leather and, and whips. And and boot polish to make sure it kept shiny. So I looked at the estate agent, he looked at me and we left. Wow. And is this person still around? Famous TV? Film? You know, I've got this terrible memory when it comes to proper nouns. I, I, I have no, I cannot remember who this very famous person was. <laughs> that's funny that isn't it i can't i can't remember one day w when we know the world is going to end we're just going to have to do one of these podcasts and go we're now going to name everybody that we've um, sort of hinted at when my late husband was promoted to head of department from just you know editor of a program he became head of features hmm. the head of premises in the bbc walked in and said you are now eligible for full draw curtains <laughs> 
<laughs> well, what, what can I say? It's, it's a bit like one of these sort of um, casting couch stories that you hear, sort of come into my room and the curtains get drawn. You think, oh, hell's bells, let get me out of here. Has it happened to you? Do you know, I've the most embarrassing moment of my entire life. Yeah. Uh, and I was young and I was impressionable. Um, I was invited to go for an audition and it was for Equus. Now, if you've seen Equus, the lead, oh, wow. the lead actor is naked. Yeah, absolutely. And, Full frontal. And, yeah. And an incredibly um, camp director said to me, um, now, Adrian, he said, uh, he said, uh, you read that very well. If you could take all your clothes off, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I laugh about it now. And I stood there and I thought, this is what's known as pushing the boundaries. And uh, I, I, I took my clothes off. That sounds ridiculous, but I did. I don't know why I'm telling you this. Um, and I stood there and he went, now, if you could adopt a few poses. And I'm thinking... <laughs> So I'm standing there, sort of as if I'm riding a horse, as if I'm sort of about to take on the, you know, gladiator pose or whatever. And then he went, that's very good. Now, um, we'll be in touch. And I knew, I knew that really it uh, was not going to be uh, a part that I was going to be offered. <laughs> <laughs> Esther, you yeah. started something a few weeks ago. You said, um, you know, with our guests coming on and today, we've got David Baddiel. Um, mm -hmm. What did you, what did I think they would take to the afterlife? So, uh, you know, it's a question we ask at the end of the podcast. So what do you think David's going to take with him? Something football orientated, I think. Yeah, I think he'll take a football. There you are. Well, we'll see. Um, and uh, yeah, so fingers crossed, looking forward to talking with him. Uh, we've had, by the way, some listeners send us their emails and favourite life hacks. Uh, please, please, please do remember, uh, we love to hear from you on whatever subject you care to share. It's hello at thatsafterlife.com. And do subscribe to our podcasts and do rate us. And we hope we're hitting five stars with you. And uh, it's for you to decide. But uh, please, we'd love to hear from you. So, Esther, you ready for this one? Elaine. Elaine says, I'm loving your podcast. It brings back lovely That's Life memories. I especially enjoyed Jake Thackeray with his witty songs. When I met my current husband in 2011, he told me Jake was his English teacher at school. He, he had worked with us on Braden's Week, which was the predecessor to That's Life. And he was absolutely brilliant. Uh, lovely sort of Yorkshire deep voice. I fell in love with him on the radio, interestingly. And then when I met him and I saw how gorgeous he was, really fabulous man. But what I didn't realise was he was painfully shy. I wonder what he was like as an English teacher, because teachers have to be performers, don't they? Very much so, hold the audience. He had a very sort of plummy... If, if anyone's never heard Jake Thackeray, there are clips of him on YouTube, and it's a, it's a very bizarre accent, because I remember watching him at home on that, that side, and this plummy Yorkshire accent, which is so extreme that you think it's got to be made up. Uh, Esther, got another one here. Um, Julie from Norwich has sent us a life hack, and I know how much you life, like your life hacks. Mm. If you have bad-smelling shoes... What? Yeah, well, of course, I, I, I would never think you would have smelly shoes. Place a few dry tea bags inside each shoe to absorb the smell. <laughs> All right. Should I go around sniffing my shoes? I have never sniffed my shoes, ever. Ever since I was a child, up to this grand old age, if they're new shoes, I always smell them. Don't ask me why, I always smell new shoes. Put your nose right into them. Bloody hell, lady. 
I know, I know. I need therapy. But no, I love the smell of a new shoe. Well, <laughs> I must say, with my prejudice against wasting food, I suppose if I put tea bags into smelly shoes, I would then be forced to make a cup of tea. Esther Anson uh, has reinvented uh, the return of uh, foot and mouth. Right, <laughs> moving swiftly on. Um, on. I have heard on the podcast, this is um, Liz from Belfast. Uh, I heard on the podcast you were planning your birthday. Um, I must say the thing I dread most about birthdays are the presents. Now, I love my husband very much, but even after 20 years of marriage, well done on that, he still doesn't seem to have cracked it. Last year, I got a jumper. It was bright orange, a colour I really hate. It was the wrong size and even worse, made of wool, which I'm allergic to. What's your worst birthday present? Oh, wow. Well, how does one answer that without offending people? I know, I'll go back to my pre-marital days when I had a gentleman friend. And one Christmas, he um, opened his office desk drawer and pulled out two identical parcels one for his secretary and one for me no and when I opened mine there was a dreadful pair of transparent nylon scarlet knickers embroidered no 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 and when I showed them to my girlfriends they said I should embroider another no on them and give them back Wow. My late husband once gave me a hot air balloon experience. And we went up in this hot air balloon, which was fantastic. But then the pilot turned to me and said, well, there's two things you need to know about this. One is balloons don't land, they crash. Mm -hmm. And then you're dragged. And then he said, and you have to choose whether you want to fall on top of me or you want me to fall on top of you. Which did you choose? I think I chose to fall on him. <laughs> and we crashed into a bramble bush. And it was ages before anyone found us. Oh, my goodness me. So it's time to meet our, um, our star guests. We're very lucky because we've got David Baddiel joining us. He's quite special, isn't he? Oh, am I saying it in front of him? David, are you there? No, I am now, Esther. Uh, I, did, I heard you say I was quite special, unless you were talking about something else, which you may have been. Uh, hello. Hello, David. I was talking about you. Well, that's nice. Well, look, let me talk to you about your childhood, David. When did you first make someone laugh? Uh, that's a good question. So at my school, when I went there, the sixth form used to put on a, re a review, an end of term review, and it got booed off like every year. It was on at lunchtime and every year it got booed off because it was really unfunny and terrible. And I, I can't really remember what it used to be because there's not been one since my one. I'll explain why. But it used to be, I think, just sort of sweet songs about school life or whatever. Uh, and then I somehow, a mate of mine got asked to write it and he asked me to help him write it. And I decided, I know what this should be. It should be sketches about teachers that everybody hates, right? <laughs> teachers that have been like horrible. I mean, what, the only one I can distinctly remember is we had a sort of very hypocritical religious library guy who ran the library. It was always really horrible. And the sketch involved him having sex with his assistant uh, <laughs> on top of a photocopier uh, that, we, uh, that we set to music and sort of danced around. 
down. Uh, and so there was that, and there was, and there was many, many other really scurrilous sketches. And I, I was in most of these sketches and it stormed it. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was like, you could tell everyone there thought, oh my God, it, for, it, for the first time ever, this is funny. And it was had one performance, it was meant to have seven, and it immediately got taken off by, <laughs> by the teachers. I was cool for the first time ever. But also, I mean, there's, there is nothing more seductive than the sound of people laughing at you. That feeling, which I'd never had before, uh, of, oh, right, people are laughing with me, they're with me on this satire of this teacher. It's, yeah, it's an unbelievably bonding thing. And then at the same time, it's, that's why it's so humiliating and awful when they don't laugh. Because you put yourself out there as, I'm going to lead you all in this great joyful experience. Oh, we, we don't want you. <laughs> that's, that's a very bad experience. Were your parents supportive of this career move? Not really. I mean, I, I did a show about my parents uh, mm. called My Family, Not the Sitcom, which was in the West End. And it was mainly about my mother. I think it got understood by people who didn't see it as being mainly about my dad and his dementia, but actually it was mainly about my mother and her very interesting and unusual sex life. Um, and one thing that I tried to make clear to the audience <laughs> is that parenting, in my opinion, and I'm sure it's different in Esther's case, but in my parents' case, parenting wasn't really a word in the 1970s, <laughs> right? I mean, Jerry Seinfeld does this joke about how for his parents, the children, him and his brothers were like raccoons in the sense that they had a sense there was one around here somewhere, but they're not sure where it is. And, and my parents were very like that. They absolutely did not stop their life in any way. And they had quite colorful lives for their children. I mean, I think they loved us, but in a kind of distracted way. And in the same way, I don't think my dad was and is a really funny bloke. And I, I do have some footage of my dad when I did Wembley Arena being very nice to me, which I find really moving because I, don't, I actually don't have a sense of him gen generally being like that. For my mum, it was much more just about, oh, my son's on the telly. So I'm going to go along to this premiere that he's at or I'm going to turn up at this. I've got this, I did a film called The Infidel in 2010 and I've got footage of all the cameramen taking pictures of me and Omid Lily, who's in that film. And then beside the cameras is my mother. <laughs> my mother taking a picture of me and Omid Jalili because she just wanted to get on the red carpet even though she's not in the film right and uh, and she was much more like that she loved me being famous but I'm not sure she was ever very bothered with the actual work to be honest. Most children discussing their parents sex life my children are overwhelmed with embarrassment at the idea I could possibly have had sex ever and yet <laughs> you were quite cheerfully talking about your mum's sex life yeah, well, I'm proud of that in a strange way, uh, because like my mum was crazy. And the cr principal crazy thing about her is that she had an affair with a golfing mem memorabilia salesman, which led to her becoming obsessed with golf and, t and turning all our lives over to golf so that the whole house became filled with golfing memorabilia. Um, and she was constantly telling people about this affair with the golfing memorabilia guy and writing poetry about it and just you know, obsessed with it. And with, you know, in the show, I examined whether or not my dad, who was the only person who didn't seem to know it was going on, was, you know, was aware of it or not, because he was so absurdly uh, like a man not interested in the life of the emotions. It seemed that he sort of passed him by. And anyway, so all of this involved me talking, yeah, in some depth about my mother's affairs, um, reading out her erotic poetry and uh, all the rest of it. And people were cringing, but they were laughing and they also understood it as a celebration.
How did you know about her erotic poetry? Well, that was probably the moment that I thought I'm doing this show because I've been thinking about it for a while and my brothers have been like, should you be doing this or whatever? And I've been saying it comes from a place of love, uh, which it does. Uh, but then we were just going through, and quite a lot of the show is about how you go through, you know, just to sort it out, people's stuff uh, after they die. And we were at my mum and dad's house going through all this golfing stuff. And, you know, you're aware as you're going through the golfing stuff, this only exists because she had this affair, which she, it, it became the centre point of her life, this affair. Um, and then suddenly I find this book, which is a kind of diary of her affair, which most of which is erotic poetry. Okay, so this is what, what is perhaps unusual about me, is I read that and my first thought was, uh, okay, okay, this is what, because I'll tell you a bit about it. So earlier in that show, I set up the fact that my mother misuses inverted commas, which she does all the time. So she uses inverted commas with things that shouldn't have inverted commas on them. So for example, I show an email where she says, I hope you're having a Thanksgiving dinner. By the way, we never have Thanksgiving dinner, but she sent me an email once saying, I hope you're having Thanksgiving dinner with all the trimmings and put trimmings in inverted commas. I'm like, <laughs> okay, why are they in inverted commas? Because like, <laughs> you just mean trimmings. Right? You don't mean not trimmings, you mean, so anyway. So, and then later on when I found the erotic poetry, all body parts are in inverted commas. <laughs> right? um, and, and including some very extreme sexual activities are in inverted commas, are in kind of mummish inverted commas. And that was, that was my first thought, was that's hilarious, that she's carried the inverted commas thing on into her erotic poetry. But I also saw that you, you uh, quoted as saying, you have a truth urge. Yeah, well, that's true. I do, I do. I have, I have to sort of keep it under control, even in moments like this. Uh, I, I, my natural urge is, to, and my mother did that. I mean, that does come from my mother. I am my parents' son, in that my mother couldn't stop telling everyone everything about herself, including about the golfing memorabilia. So if she met, oh God, if she met you, Esther, she would like, within seconds, she'd be so happy to meet you. And she'd, within seconds, in order to make herself seem glamorous, because that's how my mother felt about the golfing memorabilia affair. In a very 70s way, she thought it was very glamorous that she was having an affair. She would just be telling you all about it. I mean, some of it, would, in her case, would not be true, because she tended to exaggerate and poeticize. But that need to tell people about herself, I've got that incredibly. And then what I match it with is on my dad's side, and my dad doesn't have that and he's quite shut down, but he's incredibly kind of muscular man, very male, very funny, sweary, et cetera, et cetera. So I've sort of combined those two things, I think. I love doing these podcasts with Esther and we have great guests like yourself, but I actually put it down to you and Frank Skinner as being the first real podcasters yeah, well, we did do podcasts from the World Cup, um, two World Cups. We podcasted from um, Germany in 2006 and South Africa uh, in 2010. And yeah, they were very popular, those podcasts, um, at a time when there weren't loads and loads of podcasts. Three Lions was the song that was so cult during uh, the sort of Euros. But there's history here because it's 66 years of the charts. Uh, you have been number one with that song, uh, along with the Lightning Seeds, twice in 96, once in 98, again in 2018, and rumour has it you're about to release it again. Is that true? Uh, well, uh, to be honest with you, I I don't think it's ever released as such. I don't think that happens. It's just it's always there. Yeah, it's just there. Like, in 2018, we didn't release it again. What happened was... England did well. This is a weird thing, OK? We have been number one four times, which is, I think, a record for any song. Uh, but 
it's a weird thing because it is entirely dependent on how the England team play. Yeah. So what happens is it's just there on Spotify and on YouTube and whatever now. And I think like before the Columbia game, for example, in 2018, it gets downloaded like six, seven million times because people are playing it on right. in the build up to the game all day. They're playing it and they're playing it. I mean, to give you an example, it was number one before we played Croatia uh, in 2018, in the semi-final. So that was a record. And then another record happened the next day when it fell 96 places. <laughs> <laughs> People completely stopped playing it. It was the largest fall from number one that any song's ever had. But now that number ones are about downloads more than they're about actual physical things, it will just go to number one if England do well, basically. Can I talk to you before we before we move on to talking about the Alzheimer's Society, because our, our guests always pick a cause and you pick them. But I just want to talk to you about your book. Yes. Jews Don't Count. Your thesis is, isn't it, that when people talk about racism and prejudice and bigotry, they forget that there is also anti-Semitism a broad consensus that I think exists now of people who would define themselves as caring about racism and other types of caring about you know gender equality and caring about uh, home, you know fighting homophobia fighting disablism fighting whatever it might be all the things that right-thinking people which would include you know myself and you two here whatever think about uh, as the important battles to be fought generally somehow or other neglect anti-Semitism as being sort of in that um, category as something. And I don't think they would if you said to them necessarily, but what I do is I start the book with about 12 examples, which range from the, what you might call microaggressions uh, against you to very much more extreme examples of the I've experienced of anti-Semitism. And in a way, what I'm always pointing to in these examples is not so much them themselves, it's the silence that accompanies them. There was an incident at football where a man just started chanting, fuck the Jews, fuck the fucking Jews, over and over again, at me and my brother who go to Stamford Bridge every week. And my brother tried to stop him and it was really horrible and awful. But my main issue when telling that story is not so much that there was racism at football, people know, know that happens. It's that in 2010, when that happened, the programme has a bit in it that says anyone who is heard shouting any form of racist abuse will be banned for life. And stewards are meant to stop it, but they didn't. They, they just let it happen. And they didn't recognise it as racist abuse, is my point. And I suppose the answer is that you and I are very good examples of people who have been given the most extraordinary opportunities by the majority population in Britain. We've had successful careers. I have never been held back because I'm Jewish. I suspect that you haven't either. If you look across our industry, you will see Jews you know, succeeding as far as their talent allows. I will tell you one one time. I don't, I don't completely agree with that, by the way, Esther. Okay, uh, okay. Well, pick me up. But let me just tell you this one incident that, that I remember. But I remember it with amusement. Here's the thing, which you may not agree with me. I was getting a, an award from St. John Ambulance. And I was sitting in a row of, of ladies wearing um, proper St. John Ambulance uniform. And I realised that there's a gentleman in front wearing a, a long cloak who appeared to be doing something religious. 
And I said to the lady next to me, do you think it matters that I'm Jewish? And she said, no, but I shouldn't mention it now. So I didn't mention it now. And, you know, it was a religious ceremony. And then um, a rather aristocratic <laughs> couple took me from that ceremony to the reception in a stretch limo. Right. And I got, got in and sat down and the lady leant forward and said, what do you think of our Jew canoe? Oh. And I thought, well, I can either grasp this nettle and say, well, as a Jew, it's the first canoe of this kind I've been in or yeah. not. Well, in a way that makes my point, Esther, that I was going to say when I tried to pick you up, which is that, I mean, the book examines why there is this neglect. Yeah. And actually the main reason, I mean, there's many, many reasons. The main reason is because of a notion, uh, a racist notion of Jews are sort of privileged and powerful as well. You know, Jews are the only race that get this double-edged racism, which is that like all racism, uh, you know, Jews are imagined as vermin or, uh, you know, liars or thieving or dirty, blah. But Jews are also the only race that get also get imagined by racists as being powerful, privileged, secret, in control of the world and all the rest of it and part of that uh, is this notion that therefore you can say things about Jews that you somehow can't say about other races because they are powerful and privileged and therefore don't need the same protections that other races get now the problem with that is a number of things a you know down the you know it leads to down the line genocide uh, but also more straightforwardly it leads to what the present situation with which is there are an enormous amount of hate crimes against Jews Jews are actually got the most ethnic targeted hate crime against them of any minority. So although I would agree that they don't suffer the same structural disadvantages that other races do in terms of actual targeting of Jews for violence, it's much greater than any other. And I would say in terms of what you just said, a more subtle point, I make this point earlier on in the book that I am one of the very, very few Jews in Britain who people know as a person who's well known is Jewish. Right. There's really very few people. There's lots of Jews, as you say, but they've got there to some extent by not putting their Jewishness on the front foot. And one of the things that that involves is swallowing it when people are anti-Semitic, which I think is what you did with the Jew canoe thing. Um, and I think the one thing the book's done, because the book is a critique of progressives, but it's a little bit of critique of Jews as well, particularly British Jews, of saying, look, why is it that we've got to this position whereby essentially, let's not make a fuss. Let's not make a fuss. Let's accept what, whatever kind of, you know, anti-Semitic aggressions come our way, because in the end, we're sort of comfortably off here, aren't we? And I think that is not a, you know, in a modern understanding of racism, that isn't a, a way forward, is what I would say. No, I absolutely agree with you. Can I ask, can I ask you a question, Esther, which I'm very interested in, do you mind? So I was a massive That's Life fan. I think I should have said this earlier on. I think I've, I watched it, at, I mean, it was complete, you know, regular appointment viewing for our family when I was a kid was to watch That's Life. It was a great show. Um, my point is, when I said earlier about, you know, how very few people in this country come out as Jewish, because I think there is a sense that it is still seen as somehow alien and not completely accepted. I would not have known that you were Jewish and would have in a way loved to have known that about you, Esther, when I was a kid. Because I think when I was a kid and living in a very Jewish household and whatever, I think, uh, you know, I, I talk about this in the book, how um, uh, Jack Rosenthal's uh, Birthday Boy and the Evacuees, those plays were the first time 
I'd seen my life represented in any way on the TV. And do you think that people in this country know that you're Jewish? Because I, I don't include you in the book in a list of people who I think people do know. I did think about this. People who are sensitive to who is Jewish and who is not, particularly if they're Jews themselves, would recognise that Esther Ranson is a Jewish name. As a kid, though, I didn't know. I didn't. Sorry, carry on. No, I get that. People used to say in my childhood, the thing about Jews is they look after their own. Mm. That's racist. <laughs> People used to, well, there were a lot of Jewish charities which raised a lot of money to help Jews. And there was a, um, in my childhood, there was a, a pride in it. You know, but I'm not saying yeah, that yeah. Jewish charities are a bad thing. I'm no. saying that the projection of non-Jews, that Jewish charities are Jews looking after their own, is a yeah. racist thing. Yes, absolutely, because the implication is that Jews don't look after anyone else. They only look after yeah, other Jews. It's completely not true. And I wanted to be a, a Jew that was not discriminating in favour of Jews. If we were able, if Adrian and I and others were able to, to help people, it had to be helping across the board. It was, had to be non-discriminating. And so I wanted to get into a position where, well, you heard my uh, Desert Island Disc because um, you were very sweet about it. And, it was really great. But I did talk uh, quite a lot about being Jewish in that. In fact, one of my friends said, non-Jewish friends said, girl, you did bang on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but maybe, maybe it's because of Corbyn that I now feel I must stand up to be counted. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, you have, I'm going to say something that, uh, again, my truth urge, this is probably not something that would be said, read the book because if because one of the effects it has which mm. is the one i was least expecting and i have in fact written about this in the jewish chronicle mm. is it's had you know, two main reactions that i was expecting one is from sort of progressive people saying oh i didn't really get it the fuss mm. about i sort of get it now the other is jews saying thank god someone's put all this in a bite-sized package so that we all the stuff that we've been going on about for a while is there and then the third one which is the one i didn't expect is jews saying you know what, I've always been a bit quiet about my Jewishness. Mm. And it's because I have a sense of this sort of, you know, not entirely happy antagonism. Even your friend saying you did bang on about it is that. Because again, map that onto if there was a brown person on Desert Island Discs talking about their brown upbringing, no one would say to them, a white person would never say to them, well, oh, you went on a lot about being from an mm. ethnic minority. They just wouldn't say it. I get and my that. Point, and if you read the book, I think it will liberate you <laughs> from, from this like, hungover sense of like, maybe I shouldn't talk about being Jewish too much. No, I will say one other thing in my defence. I think, I think I was standing up for women, actually, <laughs> on that slide. Obviously, I agree with that. I completely agree. Uh, David, uh, we ask all our star guests if there's a particular cause that uh, they really care about. And I know you've chosen the Alzheimer's Society. Could you just explain why? One of the great things about the Alzheimer's Society, and obviously there are many different forms of dementia, so it's not just Alzheimer's, uh, but is that they really embraced the show that I was doing, uh, which was about my mum and her sex life, but it was also about my dad and his dementia. And it tried to illustrate 
two things, I think. One is that the person who has dementia is still totally themselves, totally human being, and that we shouldn't just like suggest that this is someone who like has lost everything. They've lost many things, but they are still a person and they still need to be seen as that. And, what, and the way I did that was through comedy. So all that is the kind of like public face of it. But then it's about my dad. Yeah. I mean, I went to see him yesterday, actually. And uh, it was quite difficult yesterday. I'll be honest with you. It was quite tough. It always can be quite tough. But one of the things about my dad is, you know, his frontal lobe dementia meant that he was very, very out there with it when he was like five years ago. I was going to say younger. It sounds a bit weird because he was 80. But anyway, you know, he was really out there and had like, and it was very extreme and shouty and sweary and crazy, like a bull in a china shop. Actually, that was easier, even though it's really hard to manage. It was easier in a way than what he's like now, because now he's become very quiet and very withdrawn. And it's very hard to dig Colin Deal out of the disease. And yesterday it really felt like, where is he? You know, mm. um, and that's just it. That's just part and parcel of, of what it's like. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm very happy to raise awareness on this podcast of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia in general. I think we've got someone with us katie i are you with us good afternoon hi katie it's david here Hello. hi well doubtless you can relate katie to what um david has just been describing yeah do you know um david when you were just talking then about uh, that visit to your dad yesterday really chimed with me because i live 200 miles away one of the things that just stood out for me there is that you know that that loss of conversation with my dad um you know my dad used to be uh, you know very good at a monologue almost um and now um he's he's sort of processing and his attention is so diminished it's very similar sadly to um have a 14 month old daughter and it's the same sort of almost opposite ends of the spectrum but but similarities so yeah I could really relate to what you were saying then that is really hard i think if you if you live 200 miles away yeah, I mean, I mean, both both my dad uh, and I are quite fortunate in that my sister lives in much closer proximity to my dad. Yeah. Um, I think that the difficulty being is we, you know, all those joyful moments that you have in your life where you'd like to see people and 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 tell them about it's very different as you've described with your own um, father trying to do that through a WhatsApp call. But Heather is your Alzheimer's Society. Um, supporter isn't she tell, tell us explain to david what she what part she plays in your life yeah so Heather, heather's our dementia advisor and to, to say that she's been life-saving i think it is i'm not using that term lightly um and what heather's been amazing at doing very proactively but also reactively um is putting us in touch with activities that are appropriate for dad um, and she spent a lot of time getting to know who he was and who he is um and uh, you know one of the the amazing things that, that dad was plugged into via Heather um, was Watford Football Club who have a reminiscence project for people living with dementia um, and it's the first thing that dad has done on his own um, and really enjoyed and embraced in 35 years um, and they've been really creative during um, sort of lockdown in trying to stay in touch with people and when the restrictions were um, lifted slightly you know they put on um they kind of collaborated with other organizations to to try and help people to be sociable and they took care of every aspect and you know heather puts in touch with that i wouldn't have found that um had she not made that connection so um her her connections to things that put that person first as you were describing earlier david um is critical frankly 
But it's, it's lovely to talk to you, by the way. Um, and um, I'm really glad that the charity's helping with that. I mean, it sounds really difficult in lots of ways, as it always is. I think it's really helpful. Thank you so much, Katie, because, you know, David, as an ambassador and living with, you know, his father with dementia, obviously understands a lot about it. But I find it really reassuring when you hear very concrete and practical examples of the difference that Heather is making to your lives as a family and uh, more power to the Alzheimer's society, more power to Heather, give her our, our regards and maybe maybe David's regards as an yeah. ambassador. Yeah. Thank you, Esther. <laughs> Esther being like my mum there. Um, yes, yeah. give Heather my regards and thanks, thank, thank her very much for what she's doing. Yeah, everybody's mum, David, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> There's no escape. Uh, Katie, thank you so much. Uh, speaking for so many people. Uh, David, we're almost coming to the end. We ask all of our guests if they could take an object into the afterlife. Like, can you take a live thing? No animals. No animals. Okay. Has to be an object. So I'm going to go for. Uh, so I'm a massive fan of the novelist John Updike. Uh, and so I'm going to go for the complete works of John Updike, if that can be counted as one thing. It certainly can, and I'm extremely disappointed on behalf of your mother that you didn't choose either an item of golf memorabilia <laughs> or at least a picture of you and her together. Uh, no, that's all in my mind, and I'm assuming in the afterlife there is no dementia, so I, I can keep that in my head. Mind you, she's probably there. Of course, well, yeah, and she'll be there, so I can say hello, and she can be upset with me for not taking some golf memorabilia. <laughs> I'm disappointed you didn't take a football. Yeah, no, uh... I mean, a football wouldn't be a bad idea, but I just think the games there will be too, you know, they won't have enough aggression. <laughs> It'll be too nice to do It'll be namby-pamby football. Well, you can imagine what the Angels Choir will be singing as you enter the pearly gates. Three Lions, I'm hoping. David's coming home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, guys, it's been an absolute joy. It has been a real pleasure, David. Really Thank enjoyed you so much. It. So much to think about. All right, guys, I'm going to go. Take care, David. Bye. Well, what a fascinating guy. He is so clever. He is so clever. And his mother was so like my mother and so unlike her in so many ways. But you know, Esther, it's so funny because he did make me smile because I remember standing at your swimming pool in your lovely home and, and somebody prodding me in the back. And she goes, I'm going to stand in front of you. This was for the food because I'm Esther Ranson's mother. <laughs> Anyway, before we disappear, one final listener email. Susan from Canterbury says, um, I used to love That's Life. Such a mixture of comedy, serious items and music. If you had to sum up the show in one word, what would it be? Well, I've actually had to do that uh, sometimes. You know, when, when the show was on the air, you know, if ever I went in a taxi, um, the taxi driver would say to me, now... What is your programme? Is it funny? Is it serious? What, what is it? And I would have to either say both or you know, a mixture of both. But when people ask me, I always say one of two words. I either say it's a mongrel. And our programme was a mixture of all sorts, wasn't it? A smorgasbord. A smorgasbord. Even more than that. Anyway, and the other thing... When people ask me, I say, that's life was a very peculiar programme. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of our podcast. And if you'd like to join us again, please do subscribe to That's Afterlife Podcast found on any of your favourite streaming platforms, or you can find us on our website, thatsafterlife.com. And please remember, we'll be reading your letters and emails each episode. So uh, make sure you send your views to hello at thatsafterlife.com. And on behalf of all the mothers who may or may not have had affairs with golfing memorabilia salesmen, they were just playing around. I think it was a hole in one. Anyway, so um, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Till next time. From Adrian and me, goodbye. Bye bye. That's Afterlife is a Captive Minds production and is series produced by Ross Haley. The creator and executive producer is Liz Mills. Mm-hmm.